Welcome to another edition of the American Bankruptcy Institute podcasts, which feature conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy world about topics of interest to our members. I am Laura Bartell, professor of law at Wayne State University Law School and current resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guest today Andy Winchell, an ABI member and a restructuring, insolvency, and bankruptcy attorney for commercial and consumer clients at the law offices of Andy Winchell in Summit, New Jersey. Andy is the author of A Clean Slate, a bankruptcy blog, and is actively involved in foreclosure defense and foreclosure fraud issues. Our topic for today is the current foreclosure crisis. Andy, Bank of America announced this week that it was going to resume foreclosing on 102,000 mortgages in the 23 states where foreclosure requires court approval. It had stopped all foreclosures earlier this month in order to review its foreclosure process to remedy any errors. What errors was it looking for in the foreclosure process, and does this mean they are now fixed? Well, I don't want to speak for Bank of America. It's really up to them to say what problems they were looking for in the foreclosure process. I think what prompted the review was what happened with GMAC, which is a subsidiary of Ally Financial, back in the middle of September. A deposition of what we call one of their robo-signers came out, where the deponent had acknowledged that he had not done a good job reviewing the documents that he was signing and authenticating, and that he didn't necessarily have the level of training necessary to do so. Um, GMAC was certainly not the only servicer who uses robo-signers, and Bank of America would be certainly one of the servicers for the banks that is using robo-signers. So I imagine that they were looking at their internal processes and uh, investigating the extent of the robo-signer problem for them. What is a robo-signer? A robo-signer is, uh, we have to go back a little bit in history to explain what's going on. Uh, Probably around 2002, the process of servicing mortgages started to become more automated. And along the last uh, eight years or so, the process of reviewing documents has fallen away from the experienced bank officers, vice presidents, and relatively senior, well-paid people, and it's turned into an automated process. I remember, say, 15 years or so ago when I was clerking in a bankruptcy court and was reviewing documents, they would be signed by vice presidents and bank officers who attested that they had gone through the documents. The documents were the product of the business record exception to the hearsay rule. They were kept in the ordinary course of business and according to ordinary business terms and all that sort of thing. And over time, that sort of diligence disappeared. And it's been replaced by lower paid clerks or document management people who sign their name literally hundreds or thousands of times per day to documents that are produced on a mass basis. Rather than being drawn up one at a time, they're being spit out systematically by computers and not even being drawn up by attorneys. So the robo-signers are now attesting, sometimes under oath or penalty of perjury, to facts that they state that they have personal knowledge of, but, but that wouldn't even necessarily fall within the business records exception to the hearsay rule. Exactly what records are these robo-signers signing? There's a great variety of documents that the robo-signers are signing. Some of these are declarations and affidavits that are being submitted to state courts and to bankruptcy courts attesting to payment histories or loan histories or authenticating a note or a mortgage. Others are simply signing what are often called assignments of mortgage, uh, which we understand are of questionable 
legal uh, validity anyway. And, you know, these types of documents we're finding are being submitted in courts, in court cases for foreclosures, um, for motions for relief from stay, or uh, proofs of claim in bankruptcy courts. So it's a, it's a great variety of documents. Well, what are the ramifications if one of these robo-signers signs a document under oath saying that he or she has reviewed documents that, in fact, he or she has not? Does that make the mortgage unenforceable? Well, the, the first ramification of what we're talking about is, is perjury. You know, th- this is fraud, not sloppiness. Um, to talk about the effect on the validity of the mortgage, uh, we actually have to go back and discuss how it is that mortgages have been documented. This is what people in my world refer to as the alphabet problem. Max Gardner, the, the bankruptcy attorney in Shelby, North Carolina, I think coined the term. Mortgages over the past 15 or 10 or 15 years or so have become mortgage-backed securities. They've been turned into mortgage-backed securities. The securitization process involves taking the right to payment. So when you or I, you know, we get a mortgage from a bank to buy a house, we execute a note, which is our promise to pay back the amount that we borrow. And the mortgage industry wants to securitize that right to payment, uh, to sell it. In the securitization process, our bank, the bank that lent us the money originally, that's called the originator. And in order for the securitization process to work properly, there have to be two true sales from the originator for the note to be securitized. So the originator sells the note to an entity that we call the sponsor. The sponsor sells it to an entity we call the depositor, uh, who then in turn sells it to an entity called the trust, whereupon it is turned into a mortgage-backed security. For the ease of reference, we give each of these entities a a letter. So the originator is A, the sponsor is B, the depositor is C, and the trust is D. Now the the proper way, or or the best way, to transfer these notes or the, the right to payment under what is called the pooling and servicing agreement, which is the document that governs how the trust works. It's by having an an endorsement on the note from A to B, B to C, and C to D. And it's just like endorsing a check because the the note is a a negotiable instrument under Article 3 of the UCC. So you see a little stamp um, from A to B and then an endorsement from B to C and another one from C to D, and that's right there on the note. The problem with all of this was that um, Although it's a, a relatively simple procedure, or you, you know, you would think, uh, back in the heyday of securitization of mortgages, these procedures just weren't followed. You very rarely, in fact, basically never, see a note that is endorsed properly from A to B, B to C, and C to D. So that part was really just sloppiness, and you know, not so much fraud. Um, but what you see now is the attempt to find a way to make these notes enforceable, even though the note hasn't been endorsed properly. If the note hasn't been endorsed from A to B, B to C, C to D, and deposited in the trust before the trust closed, that note didn't become part of the trust, and you don't really know who owns it. So what you're seeing now is the attempt to create documents that will give the impression that the note is enforceable, and that therefore whoever purports to own the mortgage can enforce the note and foreclose on the home. That's what the issue is. Does the uh, MERS have something to do with this problem? Yes, MERS. Uh, We call them MERS. MERS is the Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems, and they are a creation of the banking industry as a way of dealing with one of the complexities of real estate law. In theory, when you lend against real estate, you want to record that note, uh, the mortgage, generally in a county record, depending upon what the state laws are. 
And when you see all these transfers going on, when you're trying to make a mortgage note a very alienable, very saleable item, you don't necessarily want to have to run to the county courthouse every time that you do one of these sales. What I've just described is three sales, which in theory would require three filings in the county records. The idea is that instead of having these, instead of having all this documentation filed in the public records, it's to have MERS record the mortgage, and they will become the mortgagee of record, and when necessary, they'll assign their mortgagee rights to whoever it is who is going to enforce the note. The problem here is that, um, well, many problems, but I'll start with one. MERS is an outfit operated out of Reston, Virginia. It doesn't really have any employees. It's not like there's a great big staff in some room in Virginia that is executing the documents necessary to assign the mortgage rights in order for whoever it is who wishes to enforce the note to be able to do so. Instead, MERS has set up a system where they essentially deputize it, and we don't even know how many, probably thousands of people, who have become nominal assistant secretaries, assistant vice presidents, you know, various titles of that sort. Those people, who are not employees of MERS, execute these assignments of mortgage. And the other issue here is that MERS, of course, doesn't hold the note. The note should have been passed into the trust, and one wonders whether MERS really was in fact a mortgagee when they never had any right to payment. So it complicates the whole system substantially and ends up involving people who are essentially surrogate robo-signers. Because almost anybody now can become a MERS assistant vice president or secretary or whatever title. And you can see a, a lawyer at a law firm or, or even a legal assistant at a law firm or just about anybody else. They can assume that role as someone who speaks for MERS and, and have, at least in theory, the legal authority to transfer a mortgage to whomever seeks to enforce it. And people in my world, you know, on my side of this, just think the whole thing is unenforceable and, and bogus. Well, apart from the problem of perjury, which you noted before, when one of these robo-signers uh, signs an affidavit that they have reviewed documents that they haven't in fact reviewed, why does it matter who has the actual note or mortgage? Isn't the mortgagee in default, no matter who has the note and mortgage? Well, there are a lot of things to consider here. One is that you're talking about the secured status of a creditor. The secured status, creditor status is, is very important. They are entitled to rights that are completely different from those of an unsecured creditor. And as such, both through the UCC and through state uh, real property laws, we've set up a system that provides a series of hoops for a creditor who wishes to become a secured creditor to jump through. And frankly, I don't think they're all that difficult to do. And a lot of these were set up by the banking industry. So you would think that the banking industry should be able to follow the rules that have been set up that they helped impose and draft. That's sort of the first answer, that if an entity wishes to be a secured creditor and claim that status and wants to be able to enforce its rights accordingly, it really should have gone through all of the steps necessary to do so. The second issue is we are often dealing with the wrong parties, and that's particularly true in a bankruptcy case. The servicer, which is neither A nor B nor C nor D, it's a completely different entity, is hired under the servicing agreement to essentially collect the payments from the borrower. The servicers are the ones showing up in a, typically in the bankruptcy case and filing a proof of claim, even though the servicer probably doesn't have the legal right to do so. So we're talking about a constitutional standing issue you know, where we don't have a, a real party in interest who is asserting its own rights. 
we have another entity who really shouldn't be asserting the rights of D, the holder of the note. Um, and I'll add another layer of complexity to this. When we're talking about loan modification, I would say maybe a majority of my clients who are dealing with this situation came to me because they were denied a loan modification. If they'd received loan modification at, at some point, they, they never would have needed to call me. And unfortunately, when they're trying to get a loan modification, they're often dealing with the servicer and not the holder of the note. Um, and so they don't, the, the, the servicer doesn't necessarily have any incentive to do the mod modification um, that the owner of the note might. The servicer is more interested in collecting the money because that's how they get paid. And they're also interested in foreclosing on the property because that carries a lot of fees as well. So when we ask the different, a different party to stand in the shoes of the real party in interest, the motivations get skewed. To some degree, we've already seen the, the, the results of this. Um, the HAMP program, the, the government modification, the loan modification program, has been to some degree a failure because we aren't getting the number of modifications that would prevent the need for a lot of what we've been talking about today. According to RealtyTrack, there were 288,000 foreclosures during the period from July to September of 2010, which is up from 270,000 in the second quarter. If many of these foreclosures were accomplished on faulty documentation, does that mean that the purchasers at the foreclosure sales are at risk of not owning the homes they purchased? I would think so, yes. I noticed in the news um, that title insurance, title insurers had backed off of their commitment to insure properties that had been purchased at foreclosure sales. Uh, it's, it's definitely a substantial issue. A lot of the foreclosures that have happened in, in the last few years are legally suspect. I guess that's how I would describe it. But if title is not assured at a foreclosure sale, doesn't that mean no one will purchase at a foreclosure sale? And therefore, the housing market will collapse? Well, it's, it's certainly possible that the housing market will collapse. Uh, it's definitely, what we're talking about here is, is not aiding in the value of homes. And we're, we're certainly not going to get through this any faster as a result of the problems that the banks have been foisting upon us. I definitely would be very reluctant to purchase a home out of foreclosure right now. Um, the people who have asked me, I have tended to advise them that it's probably not a good time to purchase a home out of foreclosure. Um, I would say the exception to that is perhaps um, if you bought it out of a bankruptcy case, if you bought a home through a Section 363 bankruptcy sale, it would be nice to have a federal judge saying that you own the home. Um, that would certainly be better than dealing with the foreclosure issue and that might deny you clear title. How does this issue play through in bankruptcy court? Well, you know, we have only been seeing this for the last uh, few years or so now that the bankruptcies have been peaking again. You know, there was a there was a big trough after 2005 with the changes in the bankruptcy laws and uh, 2006, 2007. We didn't have so many cases and now we're back up to 2005 levels of cases. There's a tremendous variety in how this is being handled in bankruptcy court. It is still uh, relatively new. I only started becoming involved in this at the beginning of this year. And, um, and most of the people that I know, and I'm familiar with you know, a few hundred people who deal with this, uh, most of them have only been dealing with this for the last few years. 
Um, most bankruptcy attorneys are not necessarily trained to spot this sort of thing. It's, it's not necessarily part of our DNA. You know, we're people who prepare petitions and try to help our clients through bankruptcy. Um, but because I came from a more of a litigation background and I found, found it interesting, uh, I wanted to look into it when I saw that it was happening. What it does is it adds a lot of uncertainty to the process, where it used to be that the lender would put in the proof of claim, and we would expect that, other than looking at the amount, we didn't really have to have any questions about it. We didn't have any reason to question what the veracity of the information was or who it was who was putting in the proof of claim. We kind of assumed that anybody who was you know, asserting their right to be a secured creditor would be the right entity. Uh, we just don't do that, or you know, I don't do that anymore. We immediately are looking at the documents uh, to see whether there are aspects that are suspect, which in the case of a secured creditor right now, there almost always are. Um, we often object to the claim and uh, ultimately commence adversary proceedings to challenge the standing of the secured creditor to assert its rights. Um, Truthfully, we often see a servicer rather than the trust, so it definitely complicates the process in something like a Chapter 13 case. Uh, I don't know that I have seen in Chapter 7s too many trustees aggressively looking at the documents that they're seeing from secured creditors. Um, obviously, in the Chapter 7 case, the secured creditor, creditor does not necessarily have to file a proof of claim. So there isn't the kind of scrutiny that there might be in a Chapter 13 case where someone like me is getting involved and looking at the claim. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of increasing interest in this. Uh, I know that I was in court this past week uh, arguing one of these, and the, the judge was keenly aware of what was going on. She had been seeing this in the news and thought that these were important issues. Uh, she was not sweeping them under the rug um, or ignoring them the way that people might have in past months or, or years. How did we get into this mess? How could the banks have engaged in such sloppy practices? Why did they do this? <laughs> well, that's sort of the $64,000 question, isn't it? Uh, I think that there are a lot of problems. Uh, one is the desire for profit. Uh, understandably, when you're talking about a bank, you know, it's a profit-maximizing institution. Their goal is to make more money. And if they can find a process or a system that will do so, they will tend to uh, adopt it. The idea behind mortgage-backed securities, um, taking the right to payment from the mortgager and selling it, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with securitizing that. But it, it takes a, a certain amount of skill and care to get it right. And if your institution has been trying to keep costs as low as you possibly can do, you might not have a level of diligence necessary to make sure that all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And that was the sort of level of sloppiness that you see with the notes you know, not being endorsed properly. Um, what's happening now, when you're seeing the amount of, of fraud and the difficulties that we're seeing with robo-signers and other fraudulent documents in court, um, I think that this is a product of there not being a good way out of this. Once a securitized trust is closed and you don't have the endorsements on the note properly, th there's not an easy way of fixing that. And as a result, what they try to do is simply try to foreclose as fast and as quickly and as cheaply as they possibly can. That leads to people having motivations of profit affecting their judgment. 
So rather than having you know, experienced vice presidents looking at their loans, checking loan documents, deciding if modification should happen, the process got automated. And you have servicers who are hired to service the loans, deciding whether to send papers on and, and whether someone should get a loan modification. Uh, with all the competing considerations and, and competing motivations and, and a fervent de desire for profit, rather than focusing on abiding by the law, we're in situations where the, the sloppiness has led to fraudulent documentation. One final question. If documentation problems are endemic to the mortgage market and have been for many years, why should anyone who has signed a mortgage during the last 10 years or so make payments on the note that is secured by the mortgage if there is no one who can legally enforce that obligation? This is an important question. Uh, truthfully, I think that our country is so inherently law-abiding that most folks are simply going to keep paying their mortgage and not go through all of the you know the things that I'm talking about now. They, they probably just don't want to deal with the headache of a strategic default, uh, which is what you're describing when you, you stop paying your mortgage and see whether someone comes and eventually forecloses and kicks you out. Um, people I have found are pretty attached to their homes. Um, they don't necessarily want to move uh, because if they really wanted to, they, they probably really wouldn't be living where they live. Um, so they, they have an incentive to continue to pay and not deal with what we're discussing. Um, most of the people I'm dealing with are in a situation volu involuntarily. Um, between divorce and illness and sudden job loss or business failure, that represents uh, the majority of my clients. Um, they're in a spot where they really didn't have a choice uh, because you know they were short on funds. They didn't have the money to pay. The real question here is, though, uh, should someone who does have the ability to pay, should they decide that, well, I, you know, I'm going to roll the dice here. I'm going to see whether anybody's going to manage to foreclose. Uh, for people like that, they probably care about things you know, like their credit rating and, and their p position in the community and their ability to buy a new home. It, you know, it probably doesn't make sense for them. Um, I think that the talk of strategic default has you know, probably been a little overstated. Um, I haven't seen many circumstances where people have done that and just decided they're not going to pay anymore. Um, it wouldn't surprise me too much, though, uh, if that increased. Um, with so many homes underwater right now, you know, people might be thinking and saying, you know, why do I want to keep paying into this home that might not have the value that it had a couple years ago uh, for many more years? It, you know, it simply might not be worth doing. Uh, if that continues, if, if home prices remain stagnant, I, I, it, it might be a possibility that, that uh, strategic defaults might increase. We are unfortunately out of time. I want to thank our guest, Andy Winchell, for discussing with us the current mortgage crisis. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to access the more than 80 podcasts on file at www.abiworld.org. This is Laura Bartell, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. Thank you for joining us.